John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast, Epilogue 2. This podcast looked at life in World War I through the letters of John Adams, who was 23 when he joined up in September 1914. He served with the 9th Service Battalion Royal Irish Fusiliers and was involved in many significant events on the Western Front, particularly Passchendaele. These are his words, read by his grandchildren and narrated by his great-grandchildren. In this, the last podcast, we look at John Adams' life from the end of the First World War to his death in 1971. We use the history of Northern Ireland as a backdrop to his life. With me in this final episode are John's other two grandchildren, my brothers John and Roger. Hello, podcast listeners. Hello. What we're going to do is we're going to look at John Adams' life, the main events in his life that we know of, and we will use the history of Northern Ireland as a backdrop. Northern Ireland began basically just after the First World War, and we'll pick this up in 1920. And we're going to look at this decade by decade. It's not easy condensing Northern Irish history into a few simple lines, especially when you reach the start of the Troubles in the late 60s. I have tried to be even-handed and bring some of the major events in the history of Northern Ireland, but much, much more has been left out. I used the website cane.ulster.ac.uk for the information and would recommend to anyone who wants to get some sort of idea of the history of this smaller corner of the world to look up that website. So we're going to start in the 1920s. In November 1921, John trained and then worked as a motor mechanic for Roland and Harris Limited Newry before a period of unemployment. On the 23rd of February 1922, he joined the Ulster Special Constabulary A-Class. By June, he had risen to sergeant and by October 1924 was promoted to head constable stationed at Middletown. As of 13th March 1926, the A-Specials were disbanded, which meant a further period of unemployment where John considered joining the prison service in either Northern Ireland or England. By 21st of May 1926, John joined the B-Specials as a full-time sergeant instructor. In 29th September 1926, John Adams married Mary Adams, also known as Minnie. So the history of Northern Ireland through the 1920s. In 1920, the Government of Ireland Act passed through the British Parliament. As a solution to the Irish problem, it proposed that Ireland should be partitioned with a devolved Parliament based in Dublin uh, for 26 southern counties and a similar body in Belfast for six of the northern counties. While Sinn Féin totally rejected the proposals, Ulster Unionists decided to accept the Act. In 1921, James Craig, a leading businessman, who was now leader of Ulster Unionism, became the first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland when the Parliament was opened by King George V in June. Across Northern Ireland, sectarian violence continued to break out. On the 12th of July 1921, 23 people were killed and over 200 Catholic homes destroyed. While in 1922, sectarian violence resulted in approximately 232 people being killed and roughly 1,000 injured. In response, on the 7th of April 1922, the Northern Ireland Government introduced the Civil Authorities Special Powers Act, Northern Ireland, 1922. In 1924, after some delay, a boundary commission, which had been provided for in the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921, was established to formally fix the border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Free State. 1926, 
On the 6th of May 1926, the Emergency Powers Act was introduced in Northern Ireland. So, Northern Ireland in the 1920s, any comments? It's turbulent. Very much so. When you think you think about the troubles being just in the, from the 60s forward, but there, I mean, hundreds of people being affected by it. Yeah, I think it's quite hard to for us uh, to imagine how our grandfather felt about all this. I know he, he had joined the UVF, the original UVF, uh, before the war, um, and how he felt in a, in a border town, um, you know, living in, in South Armagh. In those times, it must have been very difficult for them, and he must have been expecting to repel invaders or, or some such. I think there was a big element of the unknown. It's interesting, we're sitting here recording this in Dublin, where we've just gone had a look around some of the history of um, St Stephen's Green during the rising of the um, Irish Historical Museum and so on. And the 1920s were a really turbulent time across the whole island. And I think a lot of that turbulence was not just in the civil war in the free state, but it was also fed over into Northern Ireland. And for John Adams, being a border guard on the newly minted border in Middletown was probably quite a, a uncertain time and something where he felt he was establishing order. I think that's probably the, the easiest way to express that. I just thought there, would they have been sure of where the border was? Uh, yes, because of the old county boundary. Right, but maybe in the future it might have changed. Yeah, that boundary commission that was provided for in the Act, I think they were thinking the border might well have moved a little um, before they finally established it. And of course, they couldn't agree, so it stayed as it was on the country boundary. But that wasn't clear for some years. Yeah. Well, there was some hope in South Armagh that the whole of South Armagh would be brought into the Free State. We'll go on to the 1930s. In 1933, John Reed Adams was born, John's only child. And in 1935, John was awarded the Jubilee Medal to celebrate the Silver Jubilee of King George V. In 1932, the Northern Ireland Parliament moved to a purpose-built building on the Stormont Estate on the eastern outskirts of Belfast. The official opening was carried out by the then Prince of Wales. By October 1932, economic hardship coupled with welfare cuts imposed on the Northern, by the Northern Ireland government provoked widespread unrest, and this culminated in rioting on the streets of Belfast. What was to make this unique was that it saw Catholic and Protestant protesters for a time ignoring sectarian divisions and briefly agreeing to cooperate with one another. The events were known as the outdoor relief riots. Again in 1935, there was an upsurge in violence around the time of the Orange Order marches on the 12th of July. The rioting was some of the worst seen for a decade and did not end until the end of August. In 1936, the Public Order Act gave the Chief Constable the power to impose conditions on parades or public processions if it was thought they would lead to public disorder. And finally, at the start of the Second World War in 1939, the British government decided against the introduction of conscription in Northern Ireland. I think that introduction or non-introduction of conscription was more about avoiding riots, uh, avoiding disturbances about Catholics not wanting to join the British army. Well, of course, conscription was never introduced in the First World War in Ireland for precisely the reason that it would have alienated a large proportion of the Irish community. I think the same would have happened in Northern Ireland. And yet, 
as many from every each community joined the army at that time. Uh, it's interesting to see about the outdoor relief riots that they were they weren't sectarian riots, which is quite unusual for Northern Ireland. One of the unusual factors of Northern Irish politics is a split along sectarian lines rather than along economic or class lines, and has been such for the whole of the history of the uh, state. So to the 1940s. On the 20th of June 1941, John was promoted to county adjutant, and in 1945 he was awarded the Defence Medal. Could I add a little bit of comment on that? Because actually during the 1940s, the Ulster Special Constabulary was responsible for the Ulster Home Guard. So in his position as county adjutant, he was actually operating as one of the leaders of the County Armagh Home Guard. His former commanding officer in the 9th Irish Fusiliers, uh, Captain Enser, was actually in charge of the Armagh Home Guard. In the 1940s in Northern Ireland, 1940 started with James Craig dying and being replaced as Northern Ireland Prime Minister by John Andrews. In April and May 1941, the city of Belfast was attacked by German aircraft on four occasions. Some 1,110 people were killed and over 2,000 injured with over 50,000 houses damaged. The authorities in Dublin sent fire engines to Belfast to assist the emergency operations. Towards the end of 1941, the IRA decided to step up its campaign of attacks in Northern Ireland. In response, the Unionist authorities introduced internment and used the provisions of the Emergency Powers Act. In 1942, the first American troops began to arrive in Northern Ireland and an American naval base was established in Derry. In 1943, the Unionist Party forced the resignation of John Andrews as Northern Irish Prime Minister. He was replaced by Sir Basil Brooke. In 1946, the National Insurance Act Northern Ireland was passed by the Northern Irish Parliament with its provisions and benefits for the unemployed, the sick, the retired, widows and orphans, as well as for women during pregnancy. One of the things, I mean, this brings into uh, our parents' memory. My mum told me that she remembered in Market Hill, standing on a hill and seeing the bombing raids in Belfast, the Belfast Blitz. I mean, that's 40 miles away. Uh, and people able to see that. And of course, where our parents grew up, there was an American presence during the Second World War. And in fact, there was an Italian prisoner of war camp just up the road from both of them. Yeah, Gosford, uh, for what's now Gosford Forest Park, um, there was a prisoner of war camp there. And uh, there's a, a little windmill was built where the car park, one of the car parks is now, um, that was apparently, according to mum anyway, built by the prisoners of war. And uh, still there, as far as I know. And of course, um, our other grandfather, William Thompson, was the police sergeant in Market Hill at the time. And one of his responsibilities was actually ringing the air raid siren in Market Hill when air raids were going on across the country. In 1952, John was awarded the MBE and the Ulster Special Constabulary Long Service Medal. Unfortunately, due to illness, he was unable to attend the investiture in Buckingham Palace. And on the 25th of October 1952, he retired. In 1954, the IRA mounted a raid on Gough Barracks in Armagh to seize weapons. 
1955, a British general election was held uh, in May and Sinn Féin candidates were nominated to contest all ten of the parliamentary seats in Northern Ireland. In two constituencies, Republican MPs were returned. On the 11th of December 1956, the IRA launched a new military campaign in Northern Ireland. Okay, so what was John's ill health? I don't quite know, but I think it was possibly something to do with some of his First World War injuries. Now, the one thing that we've not talked much about during the First World War uh, is the time, the one or two times that John was gassed. And you do wonder whether there's something about a long-seated lung condition or bronchitis or something like that that has set in that had actually given him cause to retire early. He'd also had two pretty significant gunshot injuries or gunshot and shrapnel injuries to his hand and probably more seriously to his thigh. What we also have are some really touching letters from the 1950s that were sent to John whenever he retired from people who really appreciated his service. And they come from a whole range of people from the police people that he worked with right through to politicians and and others. Um, So it's really quite inspiring to read. In the 1960s and 1961, John's first grandchild was born, John Thompson Adams. In 1965, on the 5th of May, Derek William Adams was born, John's second grandchild. Unfortunately, in 1967, in January, Derek Adams died. In 1968, another grandchild was born, Roger Noel Adams. In 1962, dwindling support for the IRA ended the group's Northern Ireland campaign. In 1963, Sir Basil Book resigned as Prime Minister and leader of the Unionist Party. His replacement in both positions was Captain Terence O'Neill. O'Neill soon committed himself to transforming the face of Ulster. In 1964, the Campaign for Social Justice was formed. This was the forerunner to the Civil Rights Movement and drew attention to discrimination by the authorities against Catholics. In early January 65, the Irish Taoiseach travelled to Belfast and met Terence O'Neill, the first time that a Taoiseach had crossed the border. In 1966, events marking the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising took place throughout Ireland. The holding of such events in Northern Ireland had given rise to concerns amongst Unionist opinion that a revival of the IRA was imminent. Early in 1966, Ian Paisley, a fundamentalist Protestant preacher, formed the Ulster Constitution Defence Committee in a campaign against O'Neill and helped establish the Ulster Protestant Volunteers. The modern version of the Ulster Volunteer Force, UVF, was formed in May, carried out a petrol bomb attack on a Catholic-owned bar, but set fire to the home of 77-year-old Matilda Gold, who died later as a result of her injuries. The UVF was made an illegal organisation the next day. In 1967, the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association was formed. The first civil rights march in Northern Ireland was carried out on the 24th of August 1968 from Coal Island to Dungannon. In October, the civil rights march in Derry was stopped by the RUC before it had properly begun. This is considered by many people as the start date of the Troubles. In April, Terence O'Neill resigned and was replaced by Major James Chichester Clark. On the 14th of August, 
the British Army arrived to disperse the rioters, marking the start of Operation Banner. British soldiers were greeted eagerly by local Catholics, who saw them as neutral. In October, three people were killed during unrest in Chankill, a loyalist area of Belfast. One of them is an RUC officer, the first of more than 300 to die during the Troubles. The number of deaths in 1969 due to the Troubles reached 16, with 13 being civilians. Okay, a vast contrast between the Northern Ireland news and the John Adams news with the birth of grandchildren and uh, the death of one grandchild as well. Okay, I was there for most of the 60s. (laughs) And I think for me growing up, for us growing up as a family, we um, we had holidays in just south of Dublin almost every year. As a a really young child, I remember going to Dublin Zoo. I remember going to the beach in Bray. I remember, you know, hanging out. Um, I remember being being able to travel across the border really freely with no security concerns that came later in my life. Um, And... For many families, the 60s was a time of optimism and a time where, you know, the politicians were actually making inroads towards actually speaking with each other um, and potentially beginning to address some of the long-seated discrimination that was happening in the in the country. And certainly, so I think the early to mid-60s were a different thing from what happened later on. The 1970s brought an intensification in the Troubles in Northern Ireland, but in January 1971, John Adams died at the age of 80. Yeah, I was around about nine when when Granda died, so I don't remember that day specifically, but I do remember we lived lived across the road from Granda. He lived in the house straight across the road from where my mum and dad had built a new bungalow, and I remember um, dad going, dad went across every day to see Granda and obviously around about the time he died, he went across and found him dead in his bed. And uh, I remember him being, you know, not unreasonably upset at his dad passing away. Um, and I remember a little bit of the fuss and the, what happens around Irish funerals. Um, but obviously I wasn't, um, I wasn't, I, I didn't, young kids didn't go to funerals at that time. So I didn't. One thing we didn't mention, you know, we mentioned the, um, the 50 year anniversary of the Easter rising. I don't know whether there's any evidence of a 50, 50 year anniversary, uh, commemorations of the Battle of the Somme. That's quite interesting. There was nothing on the Cain website that I found on, on under those years, uh, but it's it's something that um, the unions community do every year on the first of July, anyway. So whether they would have done something even more at that time, I don't know. Uh, I know on the hundredth anniversary there was a lot more done and a lot more parades. Though the history of the First World War is that there was declining and declining interest all the way through right until probably the people like Harry Patch and the other late, you know, last survivors survived and then there's been an upsurge since. So I think the the 1960s were probably the lowest point of commemoration Um, and I don't think that there may not have been. 
One one thing I do remember, though, again, being a teenager and going to Remembrance Day services in particularly in Market Hill, where there was a, a preacher who came regularly called the Reverend Witherspoon. And this was he was a really old man at the time. He must have been well into his probably late 70s at the time. But he had a string of medals that he wore on his minister's outfit uh, for these Remembrance Day services. That string of medals must have been, you know, easily eight to ten inches wide. So it turns out the Reverend Witherspoon was, had been a, a lieutenant at the first day of the Somme for the Royal Irish Rifles. And there he was, 60 years later, preaching at Remembrance Day services, commemorating the people that he'd fought with. One of the things I've appreciated doing this project is seeing my grandfather, seeing what sort of man he was, what sort of things he would tell his mother and what sort of things he wouldn't tell his mother. One of the things that struck me earlier on is he he had written to Jeannie, his sister, about something that happened. And he must have said, don't tell my mum. And she went immediately and told the mother, you know, about, I think it was about rats in the trenches and things like that. So it lets you know that families are the same as we uh, grow up, but also that we, we do edit our own history, depending on who listens to it. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept. That's probably worth another whole podcast series is the idea of long time, which is that we can have, we can understand and know people who span a 250 year period in, in history. Um, I still think it's amazing that I, you know, I know someone who was born in 1890 and had a personal relationship with them. I think one of the things that I want to bring across is, is one of the legacies of Granda is in his son, uh, our dad, John. Um, you know, that dad's qualities that as an only child came from his, his own parents, uh, many of them, you know, his, his, uh, his service to his community, uh, you know, he's deeply involved in all kinds of things in the village and, and in the wider community. Uh, he's, he himself served in the Ulster Defence Regiment throughout the Troubles. Um, and, and his own parenting of, of us, I think, is a, is a legacy that I think Granda could be proud of. Before we end, we'd like to thank some of those who helped us along the way. Jonathan McGrath of the Royal Irish Fusiliers Museum in Armagh, Heather Montgomery of the School of Geography, Archaeology and Paleocology of Queen's University Belfast, Susan and Neil of Letters 1916 Project, Alan Johnson for permission, very kind permission to use his material, Mark Donald, who's a chaplain to the 2nd Battalion RIR, Caitlin, Riona, Charlotte and Catherine, who are John Adams' great-grandchildren who've joined us on this journey. We'd like to especially thank Nick Metcalf, not only for his invaluable book, Blacker's Boys, which helped us so much to know about the history of our grandfather in the First World War, but for his generosity with time and with encouragement. So thank you, our audience, for joining us in this family history project. And we hope you learned something about history, but we also hope that maybe it inspired you to look at your own family for glimpses into your personal history. My name is Mark Adams. My name is Roger Adams. My name is John Adams. And John Adams was our grandfather.
Thank you for listening to John Adams' Letters from the Front podcast. To find out more about John Adams and his family, visit www.johnadams.org.uk slash letters. The history of the 9th Service Battalion, Royal Irish Fusiliers, during World War I is taken from Blacker's Boys. Visit them at www.9irishfusiliers.co.uk with the number 9. This has been a Mark's Mass production.